The topic today is the cross of Christ. How does the death of a Jewish carpenter, rabbi, just on 2,000 years ago, change the lives of millions of people? What is the real message of the cross? What happened on the cross? Why is it so important? Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke 23. Dr. Luke, because here he describes what happened on the cross. Luke 23, verse 26 and onwards, dear hearts. I want to welcome all our viewers across North America, Canada, United States, down in the Caribbean. Luke chapter 23. So glad to see such a wonderful congregation here today. You're having a good time here in church, folks. Mm -hmm. Verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, put the cross on him and made him, made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Today, my dearly beloved friends, I want you to notice the story of the cross in three aspects. We could take many different aspects of the cross. I want to be specific today. Firstly, I want you to notice the individuals who were involved in the death of Jesus Christ, who they were and what they were like. Secondly, the great issues, the great moral issues that centered upon the cross, and thirdly, the influence of those far-off events, those influences that are felt even today. Firstly, the people. The people who crucified him, and the people who stood around the cross, some near and some far off. Not only those people who were actually present but those who had a part in the proceedings. I want you to think of them very briefly. There was Pilate. 
Pilate was a Roman procurator, and sectarian historians, secular historians tell me that he was ruthless, extremely bad-tempered, and filled with animosity, and the Bible tells me that he was a weak man. Because even though he was convinced of the innocence of this one good man who stood before him, he gave, him to the, gave in to the clamor of the crowd. And the Bible says, even though he tried to save Jesus, in the end he called for water and he washed his hands of the Messiah's guilt. Then there was another king, his name or another person in high office, secular office. His name was Herod, Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. He was the person who put John the Baptist to death. And when Jesus met him, Jesus would not even pass the time of day with this man whose hands were still stained with the blood of the greatest of the prophets. And this man, filled with rage, had a gorgeous robe put around the Messiah and said, Worship him, and they mocked him. Not only were there secular people whose hands were stained with the blood of Christ, there were lots of religious people, like Caiaphas. Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas was in charge of the court procedures that found this man guilty even though the trial was a farce. Another man who was there well known to all of us is Annas. He was the father-in-law of the high priest and a man with tremendous influence, a man who was more interested in policy and legislation and political manipulation than in the will of God. Annas and Caiaphas. But the Bible tells us these men were not in charge of the death of Jesus. This is important that you notice this. If you and I are going to understand the mystery that explains all other mysteries, please turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2 and verse 22 and 23. These verses are of real significance. Acts chapter 2, dear hearts, and verse 22 to 23. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But the Bible says even though these men were the instruments, they were instruments in the hands of God. And the Bible says it was the will of God that he should go to the cross. Then there was Judas, the most despicable person in history. The Lord had done everything for his soul, but because of pride and because 
of self-gratification, he sold Christ for 30 dirty pieces of silver. Then there was another man whose name was Simon from Cyrene. Do you know where Cyrene is? So far we're talking about Romans and Jews, but now we have a man from Cyrene because most likely this man is a black man from Africa because Cyrene is in Africa and the man who carried the cross was a black man from Africa and was forever blessed. Then there was Barabbas, some would say the luckiest man in the world. Barabbas was a robber and a murderer and about to go to the cross. And when Pilate turned to the rabble, he said, which of the two he put there? Jesus, the Son of God, next to Barabbas. And said, and Barabbas means son of father. Son of father, it means son of everybody. Son of Father. And he was the Son of God. The Son of the Heavenly Father. He said, which of the two? And the crowd, filled with rage, cried out, away with this man, release unto us Barabbas. I imagine on the Friday morning, as they could hear the sound of the blows of the nails, that somewhere in Jerusalem, Barabbas was looking from the distance and saying, I should have been on that cross. There were the two dying thieves, both cursing, both blaspheming the name of God, both in torture and in agony, but one thief at the very end said, Lord, remember me. The man who saw through the blood and the sweat and the tears and the shame and saw the Son of God because God gave him spiritual insight. That's something the priest didn't have. God the Father was there. We're going to see this today in a very real way. God the Father, the creator of the universe, was personally present at the cross. So was the Holy Spirit moving upon the heart of the thief to cry out, Lord, remember me. Satan was there. Lucifer was at the cross. He knew Jesus well because he'd mixed with him. He'd walked with him for a million years in the kingdom of God and heaven. Lucifer was there. And the angels were there. The good angels were there weeping, and the bad angels were there, gloating. They were there. The women were there. Mary the mother, Mary Magdalene, the ex-street woman, the hooker, the prostitute. Mary, wife of Cleopas, was there. Where were the men. John was there. 
John the youngest, the beloved disciple was there, but the rest had slunk away in the night. In a crisis, you soon find out who your friends are. The soldiers were there. The coarse Roman soldiers were there, cursing, driving in the nails, doing their job. Not really responsible, they were simply doing a job. The soldiers were there, and then they were gambling for the one thing that this man had, his robe. The centurion was there, the man in charge of a hundred men. And as Christ was dying, he looked up and he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. He was there. The religious leaders were there. I'm always suspicious of them. The religious leaders were there. They were mocking and laughing and gloating and getting their revenge. They were there. There was a crowd of ordinary people there watching and wondering. The idle and the curious were there. Some would say, you were there. I was there. We will see about that later on. But this event was not done, my friend, in a corner. Heaven was there. Earth was there. The civil rulers were there. The religious leaders were there. The good, the bad, the ugly were there. God was there. The universe was there. Because this was the most important event in the history, not of the world, but of the universe. Now, the issues of the cross. What is a big deal about a man on a cross? Hundreds of thousands have gone to the cross. Why is the cross of Christ central? The Apostle Paul said in Galatians, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross. When he came to the church in Corinth, he said, I'm here in weakness and in trembling. I don't have a lot of strength, but he said, I'm here to preach Christ. I want to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. The center of the Bible, the center of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, my friend, is the story of a man on a cross. The cross is central. Holman Hunt is one of my favorite artists. He did a painting that shows Jesus as a carpenter in Nazareth. It's late in the day, and Jesus is stripped to the waist. He's been working hard. He was a carpenter. His hands are raised over his head. On his face, there is the look of either ecstasy or pain. The sun is shining in from the west, 
and behind Jesus is a board on which the tools are hung, the hammers, the chisels. And in Holman Hunt's magnificent painting, the body of Jesus becomes the central pillar of the cross. And the tool rack becomes a horizontal beam. All through his life, he lived in the shadow of the cross. He said, I must go to Jerusalem. It cannot be that a prophet perish outside of Jerusalem. He said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and I must go. Peter said, far be it from you for this to happen to, Lord. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. We are born to live, all of us. But he wasn't born to live. He was born to die. The cross was ever in his mind. The cross was the center of his life. Why is the cross so important? What was the cross, firstly? I want to read to you from this outstanding book by the Englishman John R.W. Stott called The Cross of Christ. I recommend it to you. I want to read you a description of the cross. Crucifixion seems to have been invented by barbarians on the edge of the known world and taken over from them by both Greeks and Romans. It is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced, for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. The victim could suffer for days before dying. When the Romans adopted it, they reserved it for criminals convicted of murder, rebellion, or armed robbery, provided that they were also slaves, foreigners, or other non-persons. Page 48. The prisoner would first be publicly humiliated by being stripped naked. That's what happened to Jesus. He was then laid out on his back on the ground while his hands were either nailed or roped to the horizontal wooden beam and his feet to the vertical pole. The cross was then hoisted to an upright position and dropped into a socket which had been dug for it in the ground. Usually a peg a rudimentary seat was provided to take some of the weight of the victim's body and prevent it from being torn loose. But there he would hang, helplessly exposed to intense physical pain, public ridicule, daytime heat, and nighttime cold. The torture would last for several days. Who was this man? on this bloody instrument of death. The Bible says, he was in the world and the world was made by him. The world knew him not, John chapter one. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. 
All things were made by him. Without him nothing was made that has been made. He came to his own and his own received him not. Who was he? This week when I was in Oklahoma where the wind comes sweeping down the plain and the corner so high as an elephant's eye. I was reading some National Geographics. A very recent copy of National Geographic has some pictures from the Hubble telescope. Amazing. They turned the Hubble telescope to the darkest spot in the sky. The darkest spot. The least spot. And they picked out an area the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length. Can you imagine that? A grain of sand at arm's length. And they blew it up. There is a picture this big. They didn't discover ten stars. They discovered in the size of a grain of sand millions and millions of unknown galaxies like our own, like the Milky Way system. Millions. It's got pictures of them. Some of them are blown up to fill a page. The size of a grain of sand, and I know who made it, the man on the cross. Who he was. The man who made it. Not just a Jewish carpenter. The creator. Why was God? Yes. Why was God? Why was God on the cross? Would you please take your Bible? And turn to Luke 22. Luke 22 and verse 37. Beloved friends, Luke 22, verse 37. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Notice it. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Verse 39 and onwards. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling 
to the ground. This happened before the cross, but on the cross it was magnified and amplified. We are not talking about a sissy. We are not talking about a wimp. We are not talking about a weak man. We're talking about a strong, strong man. He's sweating drops of blood. The Bible tells us he was numbered with the transgressors. What does it mean? Let me tell you. What is sin? There are a number of Greek words. Hamartia, which means missing the mark. Has anybody here missed the mark? There is adikia, which means iniquity. Is anybody here guilty of adikia? There is the Greek word panaria, that means evil. Has anybody here committed evil? There is parabasis, that means a trespass, stepping over the line. And then there is another Greek word, anomia, which means lawlessness. And the Bible teaches human responsibility, the Bible says. And you know the text in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we continue to fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible says, in him is no sin. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. But the Bible teaches that the sin of the world, mine and yours, was placed upon him, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Thus, the agony. On the cross, the sin of the world was placed on Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now, I discovered something only the last few weeks that has made a big impression upon my soul. Jesus was given a cup to drink. I hope that you and I never drink it. What was the cup? The Father said, here is a cup. The cup contained a liquid that was so potent that God had to send down the angels to help him and steady his hands to drink the cup. The cup of wrath is described by the prophet Ezekiel. I did not know this before. Please turn to Ezekiel 23. You know, we've all got so much to learn in the Bible, haven't we? Ezekiel chapter 23 and verse 23 and onwards. Dearly beloved. Ezekiel 23 verse 32 and onwards. You got the text? Please read it. Ezekiel 23 verse 32. This is what the sovereign Lord says. You will drink your sister's cup. A cup large and deep. God is talking here to the sinners. It'll bring what? Scorn and derision, for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness 
and sorrow, the cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it dry, and you will dash it to pieces and tear your breasts. This is the cup of sin. It is the cup of the wrath of God against sin. Because God is holy and God is righteous. And the Bible says that when the people drink this cup, they become the object of scorn and derision and hatred. And they become as though they're filled with drunkenness. And Jesus on the cross was filled with the feelings of rejection and hatred and remorse and sorrow and felt the awful drunkenness of separation from God. There's a text in Hebrews 13 that we don't like to read that says, Our God is a consuming fire. And the fire of God's judgment came against his own son. And that forced from his lips the cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there's something here that indeed is a mystery, and I want to share it with you. Most of us have thought, and in times past I have thought this, God so loved the world he gave his only son. And so the father said, son, I'm staying here, you go down. So the son went down. And the father, safe in heaven, separated himself from his son, and the son alone took the cup and bore the cup. But I'm here to tell you today that isn't true because the father was in the son and the son was in the father. Listen to you, listen to me as I read to you from Dr. John Stott. It is the judge himself who in holy love assumed the role of the innocent victim. Did you hear this? It is the judge himself who in holy love assumed the role of the innocent victim. For in and through the person of his son, he himself bore the penalty which he himself inflicted. Can we comprehend this? The righteous and the holy God said, sin must be punished. The sinner must be punished. The sinner must go through hell. The sinner must drink the cup. And the cry goes out, who will take the cup? Who will bear the cup? Who will drink the cup? And the judge says, I will drink the cup. The Trinity, the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit through Christ satisfy the demands of the law of God for justice. God demands justice and God pays the price. What sort of God are we talking about? What sort of God are we talking about? Here are three great truths. Sin must be extremely horrible. I say to you, let us not play with sin. Let us give our sin to God. Sin is worse than anything you and I can imagine. God is awfully opposed to sin. God burns in anger against sin, my friend. Number two, God's love is beyond human comprehension. For God so loved the world, for God so loved Norman Matico, Ron Barclay, and Beverly, Adolfo, Sherry, John Carter, all of you, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And when he gave his son, he gave himself so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. My friend, he loves you. The greatest message that God can bring to your heart today, whether it is stubborn, whether it is believing, is a message that says, I love you. I've done everything for you. The law demands your death. I, have, I am the lawgiver. I, the lawgiver, have drunk the cup. The third truth is, the salvation is a free gift because he paid for it. Now think, if you will, of the influence of the cross. There was a Roman Catholic priest by the name of Father Maximilian Colby a man of God, a Polish Franciscan monk who because of racial reasons and racialism, my friends, and racism comes from another power rather than the power of God. It is the power of Satan. Oh, how Christians ought to despise racism. He was Colby. He was sent to Auschwitz, not because, Blake, he was a Jew, but because he was a Pole. And the Nazis said that the Poles were not much better than animals. One day, the Nazis the super race said, 
we are going to take so many prisoners as an example and we're going to starve them to death. Take this man, this man, this man, this man, and as they took one man, as he was led away, he cried out, he said, God have mercy, have mercy, I have many children, I have a wife, and I have children, and I want, and they need me. Of course, the Nazis didn't care. But Father Colby stepped forward and he said, Sir, to the commanding German officer, would it be possible that I be the prisoner's substitute? Why? He said, because I believe in substitution. God has got his people everywhere, my friend. God has got his people everywhere. And the Nazis, in a display of their mercy, said, exchange the prisoners. Colby was not executed. He was put in an underground cell and left to freeze and rot and starve to death. I wonder what the Jewish man, if he ever made it out of Auschwitz, told his wife and his children that there was a man who died for me. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. The cross has a mysterious influence because it calms the spirit and brings into the heart the gift of love and grace and gratitude. Such love changes the world. We do not change the world by legislation or by quoting the church manual or by playing church politics. Hearts are not changed by force but by love. Would you please turn to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 to 18, dear hearts and gentle people, those watching on television, if you've got a Bible, please turn to the text. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 14 to 18. And Paul says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. My friend, 
The cross makes the self-righteous humble, if he's willing. The cruel, kind, the merciless, generous, the violent, gentle, the crude, loudmouth, refined, the frigid, warm, the lying, truthful, the lawless, obedient. Instead of hate, there is love. Instead of restlessness, there is peace. Instead of sorrow, there is joy. Augustus, top lady, wrote the great hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. He wrote the words, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked, come to you for dress. Helpless, look to you for grace. Fell I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you quietly, reverently to kneel. I want to bring you now to the foot of the cross. Would you kneel with me? I have a sense today with this wonderful congregation. Don't we have a great congregation today? that the Spirit of the Lord is in this place, my friend. Dear Father, today we have considered the greatest of all subjects, the cross of our Lord. Thank you for your love. Thank you that as the judge, you took the judgment Thank you as the sinless one, you bore the sin in Christ. Our Father, today we want to take our eyes off the world and self and problems, dissension, turmoil, and we want to look to Jesus on the cross. As we're praying today with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, in this grand old church with the people of God, how many will say today and lift up a hand and say, Jesus, keep me near the cross. Amen. Lift up your hand if you can say that prayer. Amen. Jesus, keep me near the cross. Put your hands down. I want to ask you something else. Who can say the prayer today? Jesus, reveal the love of God to me today as never before. For let me see that love.
let that love come into my heart today. Would you lift up your hand today? If you can pray for a great infilling of the love of God, please lower your hands. I want to ask you something else. How many today will say, Oh God, because of the blood of the cross, wash me and make me clean today, Lord. Wash away my sin, my pride, my arrogance, my selfishness, whatever it is, just wash me today. Make me clean today, Lord. Can you raise your hand today with your pastor as he prays that prayer for himself? Wash me today. Nothing in our hands we bring, Lord. Simply to your cross we cling. Dear Father, look at these upraised hands. This has been a blessed sitting together here today. Surely you've been here with us today and you've blessed us. We thank you for Jesus. Oh, our hearts are just warm today. We're filled with gratitude. We thank you today that our sins are forgiven. Who can say amen? amen. We thank you today that we've caught a glimpse of the love of God. Thank you, Lord, for this love. Now, Lord, take this love and fill us up so much with love that we'll go out of this church bursting with love. Who can say that amen to that? Amen. The love of God in our hearts. And then at last, a place with Jesus in the kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for hearing us and for speaking to us today. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.